Yes, hello folks, welcome to some bonus content on the Global Football Show. I'm your host as always, Phil Bradshaw, my regular co-host, Zach Lowy. I'm delighted to be joined by a good friend of mine and, of course, the fantastic Sean Dye. Uh, you need only look at Sean's resume to see he's had a fantastic playing career, played for some of the biggest clubs in England, coaching career, and uh, most recently uh, he was at Crystal Palace. He, of course, was one of the uh, pro-development coaches in their academy and was also first-team coach under Patrick Vieira. We've got Sean on the show to talk about Youth development, uh, coaching for coaching philosophy, youth development. This is something I'm a youth coach, so um, something that's very important for me, and I know it's important for a lot of other people. And getting some direction on what Premier League academies are prioritising in young kids today. So great uh, podcast. I'm looking forward to doing this. So thanks for coming on, Sean. You're welcome. Good to be on. Absolute pleasure, mate. Sean, one of the things as a youth coach that I see is uh, there's not even a core agreement on what the primary function of a youth coach is. Because I see coaches that think their primary function is to win. And I see other coaches that say that's not the purpose of of youth development coaching. The purpose of youth development coaching is individual development. I spoke to people at Manchester United and they told me, if we have an FA Youth Cup winning team and we don't get any of those players into the first team, that is less successful to us than a team that finishes in the bottom half of the table and we get two or three players into the first team. The focus on youth development is about individual improvement. Yes, of course, winning is important. But if you were going to give a philosophy to a young coach, what would, the, what would it be? Well, it's a dilemma, isn't it? Because, you know, everybody associates football with winning or losing. So you can get caught in the trap, even in the youth development phases. My son's at an academy, is at the Crystal Palace Academy, and I've seen it from both sides. Of course, I've seen it from a parental point of view, and I've also seen it from a coach's aspect as well. So the conversations that I hear on the inside of an academy football club and some of the conversations I hear out on the field, um, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes can be a little bit clouded. Um, But ultimately, and this is my outlook on it, is every young player has a different journey. And the player at 8, 12, 16 is not going to be that player at 20, 21, 22. You know, there's so many lines of development, you know, whether that's going to be physical development, whether that's going to be a mental development. So to answer the question for me, I would always try and overload it of the potential of the player changes from year to year so should it be about winning not at all costs for me not not when you're dealing with eight to 16 year olds i think when you get into the the 18s you know the the under 18s league and it does become a league in england i think the aspect of trying to win of course is a massive massive factor but you still got to try and produce players whilst trying to win. Sean, you began your managerial career in 2013 with Knox County, had some spells with Cambridge United as well as Oxford United before uh, returning to Crystal Palace and working not with the first team, but with the club's academy. I'm curious, what was it like to transition from working with uh, professionals, grown men, to working with uh, young footballers? Well, it was a decision that I wanted to make. if you look at the, 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 the normal 
route of a coach. He would probably, if from my perspective, finish playing at 35, then you jump into maybe a, a, a youth role, then you go into a you know, a phase role with maybe the 18s or the 21s, 23s, and then hopefully you get into the first team. My my role was different because it went from playing to managing one week to the next. So I did actually miss a, some key rungs on the ladder. And it was a real, um, you know, it, it was a real effort for me to make that decision of coming out of senior football. But I felt I really needed that. I needed that challenge. I needed that information. And I, need, I, I needed that experience to actually see what youth development really looked like when the pressure is not as elevated as it is in the first team. Back at Notts County, we needed to stay in the league and it was a win at all costs. But even though it was a win at all costs, you still got a large responsibility of producing players and developing players. We had Jack Grealish at Notts County and he was somebody else's player. He wasn't my player, he wasn't the club's player, he was Aston Villa's player at the time. Mm. But we were trusted to develop him in his journey whilst we're still wanting to win for the objective of staying in the league. So I think you're always developing. I think that's the answer I'm trying to come out with is that you're always developing players. I want to ask you about how it's changed because when we were growing up, there was an emphasis on physicality. Um, and I mean, there were certain physical characteristics that were indicative of whether you would make it an academy size was one of them. I remember you're too small, you know, you need to be, you know, you need to fill out, things like that. You and I see that the game has changed completely and how it's played. Obviously, it's not as physical and there's much more of an emphasis on technique. Um, what are the biggest, some of the biggest things that stand out for you that have changed in academy development football from when you were uh, playing? Well, I mean, back when I was 16 to 18, it was called a YTS. You know, yeah. the YTS changed into an apprenticeship into now what's now the, you know, the academy and, you know, a scholarship. So, but guys, it's the same. <laughs> you know, it's just a, it, it's just the words change for that. But my years were spent, if I look back at it through an honest set of eyes, it was overloaded with winning. Yeah. Now, I quite liked it because it took me into my phase as a professional footballer of just being so determined to win at all costs. But I wasn't really coached the way that some of the young players are coached now. You know, some of the young players, again, mentioning my son at, at the football club, having played through the ranges of under eights to under 16s, maybe playing with a, a back three, a back five, a four, three, three with a holding midfielder and two advanced eights, you know, changing the ways of playing the game. He's had all that information over the last eight years. My days were four, four, two, yeah. get it up to the big man, surround it, get the ball wide and cross the ball and make sure that you, you know, you're hard to beat on the counter. I think it's a lot more detailed now with a lot more knowledge from the coaches that are now on the field with the young players. Sean, uh, in 1998, you were bought by Sheffield United for 
thousand pounds. That was the same year that I was born, coincidentally. Cheers. I didn't mean to give you a backhanded insult, but uh, I didn't come with it. I, it's it's safe to say that you've been around the game for a while. Me, you know, reading a lot of uh, historical pieces on English football. You you know, I, I've read a lot of stories about players, uh, you know, smoking a cigar or drinking whiskey before a game and having some less than modern uh, eating habits, shall we say. I'm curious, you know, talk to me a little bit about that aspect of what you do off the pitch, how you eat, how you train. How do you think that has changed in the, uh, you know, three decades or so that you've been in this game? Oh, I mean, you know, the professionalism has come on leaps and bounds. You know, you mentioned 1998. I remember my first week having signed for Sheffield United. I played on the Saturday against Lincoln for Knox County. I remember, I actually remember being drunk on the Sunday while speaking to Sheffield United because I'd been out that night and had such a heavy night that I was still kind of hung over. And I, I got sold on that Sunday morning from the chairman who rang my home phone. I was living with my mum and dad at the time saying, We've got a big meeting at 12 o'clock. We've just agreed a deal with Sheffield United. And I'm hung over from the night before. I had no idea I was signing for Sheffield United. So you can imagine, you know, you can, you can imagine how times have changed now and, you know, the, the, the habits that the players um, are accustomed with now. They're not just come this last five years. This, ch this changed and transformed when I was playing. You know, uh, the impetus of foreign players maybe coming into the top two leagues, the Premier League and the Championship in England. Probably, if I look back when I was 26, 27, sharing changing rooms with, you know, European players who had different habits yeah. and different beliefs about looking after the body. So it did rub off on the, um, on the British lads. And I actually believe now that if my habits would have been better from maybe 16 onwards up until, you know, that 28-year-old who suddenly recognised there was a different way of living his life away from the football pitch, I think I'd have probably got more out of my career. It's a really good question because as sports science has evolved, um, we understand physiology better, we understand diet better, um, we also understand some of the other intersectional issues that we didn't learn about, such as psychology and, and, and you know mental health and everything. Uh, professional academies in England are sending kids from as young as nine. When does the conversation start about nutrition? When does the conversation start about how kids are living outside of football and giving themselves the best chance to succeed? I mean, when, if you're managing kids, not even at the Premier League Academy, if you're coaching kids, when do you start having conversations with them about how they and even and, and I'm saying fitness. Um, do you do fitness work with nine year olds or do you just trust they're naturally fit? That's not something you need to emphasize. And do you have conversations about nutrition? Yeah, I mean, if you look at a, a Crystal Palace Academy, you know, just the academy facility alone, take away the first team site, which has got, I'm guessing, maybe close to 70 people working on that site. If you look at the academy, there's got to be close to maybe 150 people work inside the academy. Not all of them are coaches, by the way. You know, they are going to be psychologists, nutritionalists. You know, at Crystal Palace, there's full-time teachers there. So 
these boys are being um, taught from such an early age the importance of it not just being what is developed on the football pitch. Yeah. It's everything that goes off it. So it's not just the it's not just the kids either. It's the parents that need to be educated. Yeah. And you know, Crystal Palace spend a lot of time putting on events purely for the parents. Because if you can influence the parent, they obviously carry the biggest influence on the child. You know, the parents and the guardians who look after these children, and they are children, and not all of them are going to come through to make it as professional footballers. You know, obviously the filtering system where you start with this amount of players and suddenly, 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 you know, it kind of crescendos into maybe one or two coming through at each age group. Mm -hmm. So... I think the responsibility from the football club is not just to look at the elite player. It's to look at the elite professionalism within the player at the football club. Crystal Palace, when you compare them over the past few seasons, it's almost night and day. They've gone from being the oldest team in the Premier League to a team with plenty of young stars and you know have produced quite a few uh, academy players such as Tyrek Mitchell and Aaron Wan-Bissaka. I want to talk a little bit about your role in the Palace Academy because it does seem like uh, they have modernized quite a bit. They've invested a lot of money and and put a lot of their resources into this in order to uh, shore up so much of the talent in South London. So, yeah, can you just talk to me a little bit about your experience with them? Well, of course, coming from a, a first-team environment, having left Oxford and coming into Crystal Palace, it was a transition football club. And I say that not on the pitch, but off the pitch. You know, the academy didn't have a home in terms of a fantastic facility. So you mentioned some of the players that have come through, but unfortunately, Crystal Palace have lost a few players purely because they've not had the facility to to keep the better players inside South London. They maybe have lost them to an Arsenal, a Tottenham, a West Ham, a Fulham, whoever it would be. But now they've got this super, you know, multi-million pound facility which is state-of-the-art which arguably is up there with the best facilities in London it allows that football club to keep their best players which is so important because you know when you think about how much money gets paid into developing these players the club are now saying well we've now got the facility we've now got the infrastructure and the resources available now the pressure's on of developing more and more to coming into the first team. Now that's the next challenge. So when I first came, you know, we were, I think in the sixth or the seventh year of our um, tenure in the Premier League, the football club's now entering its ninth or 10th year. So, you know, it's a football club now that understands the Premier League and it understands that unfortunately that bracket from mid to lower end of the Premier League play probably the least amount of football in the whole pyramid of English football. You've got the Premier League season, which carries 38 games. They're not playing in the elite Champions League or, you know, the Europa Leagues. There's probably the two competitions, the league and the FA Cup, the likelihood is it's going to be an exit at maybe the third or the fourth round. So if you accumulate all the games available, 
to that bottom half of the Premier League teams, teams like Crystal Palace would find it very, very difficult to blood a young player into their in, in, into their match day eleven. How often do Crystal Palace, are, are, are Crystal Palace, and so many teams around them fortunate enough to be in a position of three and four nil, comfortable in a Premier League game, like maybe you would see a, a Manchester City or a Liverpool or an Arsenal? So it's very difficult to blood a young player, but. The challenge now in this football club is: Can they, can they get another Tyrick Mitchell into the in, into the team, and can he be a regular? Can they get another Aaron Wambasaka, not only starting, but ultimately selling him on for over fifty million? That's the big challenge for the football club. So I want to ask you something that's a relatively new problem, um, certainly different from when you and I were young. Um, when we were kids, we played football on the street. Um, today kids have different interests, they've got video games, they're much more uh, solitary, they've got lots of other things going on in their lives. And so this begs a couple of questions. One, um, if you're sitting down with your parent, how often should kids be playing? How often should you be playing outside structured coaching? Um, given the fact that it's not realistic for kids to play three hours a day with a coach whenever they're not at professional academies, um, you know, a lot of the game for street footballers was learned on the street, refined by coaches, good habits that coach bad habits out of you. Um, you know, I have kids that are, you know, a couple of training sessions a week in the game, a weekend, I'm telling them it's not enough for that rapid development. Um, if you were talking to a parent, how often should kids be playing where they would be competitive at the at a level where, you know, they could expect to progress to, to, to it's competitive with kids in the UK? Well, it's a great question. It really is. I mean, again, if I rewind the clock to, if I rewind rewind the clock to my time as a young player, it would have been playing Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday, and maybe for my school on a Wednesday. Yeah. Well, if you look back, that was too much. And within that, you're still on the park at night with all your mates mm -hmm. after school until you know the the, the gatekeeper kicks you out at yeah. <laughs> at nine o'clock at night. Yeah. It's a lot more structured now, and there's a lot more um, science behind the development of young players. I like the fact that there's still super players coming through with unbelievable individuality and creativity mm -hmm. in their game. And I think at times, at times, I think we coach that out of them yes. by being very robotic in, the, mm -hmm. in what we're asking of the players. So to capture that balance is a real dilemma for, a, for a, um, a football club at all levels. I mean, you'll get players coming, not, not so often now, but when I was playing, they would come from a non-league background, maybe a lower League 2, a League 1, and then find themselves into the Premier League. It's very rare that you see that journey now. Mm -hmm. um, so it, 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 it kind of questions me of what are we doing with the young kids? Are we just coaching them purely with tunnel vision of this is the structure and we're not going to bend of it? Right. Or are we going to be a little bit more lenient and allow the individual come out in the player? I'd like us to be... I, 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 I loved Jack Grealish. He was 17 when he was with me. He was 17. He was a year older than my son. But he excited me every day. Come on the pitch. And he wasn't interested in an 11 v 11 um, tactical session 
he wanted an 11v11 game where he yeah. was up against his right back and he was a- available to showcase his supreme individ- individual ab- ability. I watch players now on a Sunday or on a Saturday morning in the academies and they don't shine like that. There's, there's, great, there's great players in the academy, but sometimes I just see the coaches and I just think, that's too structured. Yes. We, 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 we're kind of inhibiting the player that's on the pitch. I Sean, don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. Sean, you mentioned that supreme individual talent like Jack Grealish. Uh, there was a recent article by The Athletic talking about Mason Greenwood and how during his youth days at Manchester United, you know, he wouldn't be afraid to uh, tell a player that they were bad and, and that he was better than them. I'm curious, how do you deal with players like Greenwood, who are clearly world-class talents, but, you know, perhaps are a bit of a strain on the team dynamic, you know, going up against players who probably won't make it, you know, probably won't have a professional career, but are still, you know, very important to the team's chemistry? I'd probably like to change the name of um, uh, of Greenwood, if, if I may, um, mm-hmm. but I, I understand the question. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to perhaps put it in a different way of, you know, you've got this unbelievable individual talent, but he has challenges along the way that sometimes suppresses other other players within the group. Now, of course you see that, you see that at all football clubs, take not, not, not just Premier League academies, you know, you can go on to watch a local team and you'll see this lovely little player, but. He has a terrible attitude alongside it. For me, the only way, and I've said this for a long time now, the only way you can try and get some sort of um, professionalism, understanding, respect into a challenged young person is to take the game away from them. Now, everybody goes to football or I would say 99% of kids go to football because they love playing football. For me, you've got to go there and you've got to be respectful to everybody's joys and hopes and aspirations of wanting to be the best and and trying to be a young player. If there's somebody there who's really a, a problem, take the game away from them. And I can guarantee that as soon as they stop playing for your football club or for their football club, it won't be for a long time. They'll soon adapt very, very quickly. Or you might have to change the environment slightly. There might be two or three that are maybe um, affecting each other negatively. You might want to push one into a different group. You know, if we're talking about 12, 13-year-olds, there might be someone who's maybe physically developed as a 12 or 13-year-old. Well, go and push them into the under-14s. Maybe one of them you know, challenged differently, you know, mentally challenged slightly differently and he's underdeveloped well go and throw him into an under 11s category but you've got to break that trend because if you don't break it early it does become a problem i've actually experienced the opposite problem i've had kids that are exceptionally talented um but they come from troubled backgrounds and they're riddled with imposter syndrome 
and they feel unequal to their peers because perhaps their parents have substance abuse issues or they're coming from um, an inequivalent economic background where they're not wearing the nice boots. Um, I've seen kids do, who don't have the confidence to succeed at a higher level. They have the talent to succeed at a higher level, but they don't have that self-confidence. They're not getting that support from home. They're not getting that support from peers around them. Um, and these, it's extremely tragic because I see a lot of kids who don't make it uh, to the highest or not realize their potential because they're psychologically traumatized and they have this imposter. Like as soon as I get here, I'm going to get found out, and and uh, you know, and and they lack the confidence to succeed in pressure situations where they feel like failure is inevitable. And I've I've come across that uh, a few times. Um, I would imagine that um, with you were saying, Sean, that with the academies in the Premier League, they're quite tuned into that now, where they're looking at kids' backgrounds and seeing, you know, it's talent isn't enough. We need to make sure this kid has the psychological tools to be successful, whether it's in football or life, and they're given the, the therapy or support to, to believe in themselves. Yeah, and, and, and I think the, the, the challenge you've got there, Phil, is the fact that if you've got brilliant infrastructure resources available to you you know we talk about the coaches around the coaches you know the team the psychologists you know all these different people who could potentially help this young player it it takes me back to what the objective is is the yeah. objective one size fits all or can mm -hmm. we be a little bit more individual with these kids you know the challenge of getting the best out of you, Phil, to the best out of you, Zach, to the best out of me are going to be all very different. Yes. And the pathway is not going to be the same. So the coaches, whether that's a one-man band coach who takes his local team on a Saturday afternoon, I think you've got to be quite receptive to this idea of maybe slightly adapting for certain people to try and get the best out of them. Sean, if we could just rewind the clock back uh, 30 years ago to when you were making your uh, first steps in professional football with Knotts County and compare it with today. I'm curious, how would you compare the biggest challenges facing young and upcoming up and coming footballers? You mentioned that your son is at Crystal Palace's Academy. I'm curious, as in a, in a, a former academy coach, you know, what would you regard as the biggest challenges that these players are going through and are there anything in are there anything in particular that you've discussed with him that you really want to uh help him uh you know try to try to uh get past in his uh mission to become a professional footballer well it's uh, again another brilliant question zach I've, I, I've got to say of course you know um, jesse my son is um you know he's he's lucky he's lucky that his dad's had that experience not only playing but obviously you know coming out and managing and coaching now so i i'd like to think i can give him some advice but this is his career <laughs> and it's something that you know i have to support and uh, and respect the journey that he's on if i was to just tell a story about i i finished my exams at 16 and i think a week later i joined pre-season for Notts county and I didn't just join pre-season with 16, 17 and 18 year olds. Back then, it was the youth team and the first team. So 
I've gone from this secure environment of school and being a little bit, you know, wet between the ears to actually going in the big, bad, bold world of professional football. I had to catch three buses to get to training. It took me about an hour and a half in the morning. There wasn't that kind of fortune of being taken to training in a in a minibus or whether you're picked up by one of the drivers at the academies or my mum and dad both worked and worked full time so it was up to me as a 16 year old to get on them three buses to actually put myself in an environment that I didn't really understand this was meant my my first pre-season was with 20 other players ranging from 22 to 37 years old I'm literally being thrown at the deep end and it was, you had to, you had to swim to survive, you know, and those, I remember looking back at some of the talent that was in our group and it just didn't come through and it was heartbreaking because the challenge wasn't just on the pitch. It was actually off it where, you know, we lost some of these players at not scouting. Now, fast forward then 30 years, you know, Thankfully, now we understand, you know, the challenges that these 16 year olds face, which is why for the first six months, I speak to uh, a coach at Crystal Palace called Paddy McCarthy. Yeah. And he's a, he's a wonderful developer of young people. And we was talking about how he integrated the schoolboy age group into what's now the professional phase age group which is the under 18s. And he was explaining to me about how he gives them six months. I give these kids six months. They're coming from school. They're finding their own way to training. You know, they're, they're, they're out of this secure net of under 16 football. And now we're asking different challenges of them. So for the first six months, the football club just take a breather and relax. And if they come through, brilliant. If they don't come through, then there's no pressure on these lads to even play for the under-18s in that first six months at Crystal Palace, which I think is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I do. And when you, when you now add what the next layer of development looks like, which is the senior development phase, which is the under-21s league, you've got another opportunity to develop, not just physically, because I think that the average um, player now I think he stops growing at 22 years old. So you've got that extra time to physically develop, but mentally develop as well. It's such a massive part of being a footballer. Look back at me as a 16-year-old. I was very different as a 16-year-old to what I was as a 21-year-old. And even more so as a 30 and a 35-year-old. Everyone develops very differently. Couple of questions left, mate. These are excellent, really interesting. <clears throat> I want to ask you about uh, you're someone that obviously understands the game on a profound level, and when you're going to uh, youth games, you're going to uh, going to games around the country. Are there any characteristics that you see in coaches on the sideline where you think immediately? That's a problem. I mean, I'm specifically thinking about coaches that are screaming at players, right? That are punishing players, that are asking players to do things they've never showed them how to do or asking players to do things they can't do, Um, you know, or is some of that necessary? I mean, 
if you if you were to if you were to see something in a coach that would immediately offend your sensibilities, would what, what would those characteristics be? I mean, a, 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 over aggression would be mm. a, a a red sign for me. Um, and I have seen some fantastic young coaches, brilliant, brilliant developers of young people on the sideline. But I think the the stage of an under eighteen player, and then even more so into that twenty one, is listen. We're now quickly getting out of that potential stage to actually producing. You know, I, I, I call it the two Ps. When, the, when you're on one side of the academy, it's potential. You're on the first team side, it's producing. Producing mm-hmm. performances, producing results. You know, being a footballer, being a professional footballer is very different in a first team environment. So how do you look at that coach? I think you need a little bit of both. I think you need the guy who's going to put his arm around you at certain times, but you also need that guy who's going to, you know, hold you accountable to some of your actions in a way that sounds like it would sound in two, three, four, five years time when, if and when that opportunity, um, you know, comes your way. What I would say, and this is just something, again, just an idea of mine is that, and, and it happened to me, when you're stood on the sideline, and you're engrossed in the game, you can miss so much. Yeah. You do because you're in it. You're literally stood on top of players. You know, you, you, you're right on top. You don't see that kind of picture from above. And I, I've always said in development football, to have that coach sat up in the stands, it doesn't have to be the lead coach. It can be a supporting coach. But somebody sat up there that sees it from a different set of eyes is so important because like I've just said there, I miss so much as a, as a coach and a manager by, you know, not having that guy sat up in the stand. I think it's something that we should really look at. It's really interesting. John, you've had the chance to work with a variety of clubs as a first team coach, as well as an academy coach recently ended a uh, a three-and-a-half-year spell at Crystal Palace in January. I'm curious, what is the next step for you? You know, what are some things that you're looking for in your next opportunity? You know, where do you feel right now at this point in your career? Well, you know, football management and football coach, unfortunately, um, doesn't last forever. (laughs) You know, you, you find yourself out of work or you find yourself... Maybe, you know, having to pause for a slight moment to maybe see what develops at that particular football club, which is the case that I'm in with Crystal Palace. So I'm just taking a little bit of time at the minute just to try and educate myself a little bit more by, of course, I want to be a coach. I want to be a first team manager again. That's the objective for me. But when I mentioned earlier on in the interview about you know, missing certain rungs of the ladder. I don't think you ever get, I don't think you ever learn it all. (laughs) You know, you get for the last four and a half years, well, four years, I've been at Crystal Palace. So I've only seen what Crystal Palace does day to day. You're in it, aren't you? You know, you know what it's like guys at work, you're in it, everything kind of takes control of you. And then you go home and, you know, you, you try and breathe a little bit. Well, that's what's been happening for me for the last four years. You know, I've been so engrossed in the football club that now I'm, I'm looking at 
different clubs. I'm looking at different structures of football clubs. I'm seeing different levels of player again. I've been working in the Premier League for 18 months. I'm now watching Championship League One and League Two again and just seeing what's happening at them levels. Seeing young players coming through, maybe lads who are being developed at 19, 20 years old that are playing senior football in League Two. You know, that's not been an opportunity for me in the last um, 18 months. So also... I think what you've got to also try and do is is keep your networks um, hot, you know, and go and meet different people. And that's what I've been doing, you know. So this opportunity that I've got, that I've still got with Crystal Palace at the minute is just taking a little bit of time just to, you know, just to breathe and, uh, 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 and reset, really. Yeah, one thing I don't envy you that... Uh is consistent no matter what level of football you coach at is the rejection part of football of how you have to tell a kid that um, they are unfortunately you have to cut them loose and doing that at any level of football is utterly excruciating and um, it's uh, it's something that you know we were thinking about earlier when you were mentioning about how much kids should play and I'm like you know if you dedicate your whole life to this and you get cut loose at 18 with a situation with an 18 year old at City who took his life after being cut two years in 2020 how difficult that is and you realise that a big part of what you do is how you communicate and it's not what you know it's how you communicate what you know and how in tune you are with people's feelings and how to do that constructively so that they grow from the experience rather than they feel diminished from it um i would say yeah. communication and how to communicate is a big part of coaching that you've had to learn well, the last question i'm to go no it's um it's everything phil it's everything you know behind that number on that player's back there's a person inside that shirt. Yeah. So hard. You know, and um, it's very difficult. That you're absolutely right. That was probably the hardest part of, of of my time as a coach and a manager. Is I found it more difficult telling the eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old than I probably did telling the twenty eight year old. Yeah. Because the twenty eight year old has probably sat in that room many times before and either been told yes, you're getting a contract, or no, you're not. But at least he knew what it felt like in them rooms. If it's the first time rejection comes to some of these young players, you've got to be very careful how you administer that rejection. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, we talk about rejection for players, but rejection for parents as well and guardians. Them them guys, you know, mums and dads and guardians have been there for most situations every step of the way. Sat, sat there in, the, you know, pouring rain, watching their kids train four mm-hmm. or five nights a week, playing, you know, and maybe got other children in the household where they've had to maybe push one to one side. So you're giving everything to this great opportunity yeah. for your for your son or, you know, for your son or daughter, and it's um, it's heartbreaking, and I find it never gets easier as the years go by. Every single time you're faced with that conversation leading into that conversation I have tough nights tough nights of you know sleepless nights thinking about how to say it and what to say does one of the kids want it just done and done done and dusted in two minutes does somebody want an hour with you you know it's very difficult 
Yeah, I completely agree, Matt. Uh, that's the other ugly side of this that people don't get to see. It's not all glamour. Sean, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Matt. Um, Zach, are, you, are you done, Paul? You got any questions or are we done? Yeah. Sean, just one more question. I know we've talked about a lot of the changes that have occurred in your three decades in football. One of the changes is uh, this generation of footballers are using technology, specifically social media, to interact with fans, uh, fellow players. That's something that can bring positive and negative consequences, as we all know. I'm curious, though, what effects do you see uh, that social media and, and technology is having in this next generation of young footballers? And is that something that you are particularly uh, concerned with as a father? Yeah, because, you know, we'll be sat here in the kitchen in the living room at night and my kids will have their phones barely half a yard away from them all the mm -hmm. time. And it's something that, you know, I'm always kind of little reminders to them. Family time's important time and phones, mm -hmm. we'd like the phones to go away. But I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, as soon as he leaves that um, kitchen, he goes in his bedroom, he's bang on that phone again. The, when I was a kid, if I wanted a new pair of trainers, I used to have to wait until them shops opened on a Monday, yeah. Monday morning at 10 o'clock. If I, you know, and, and hopefully I've saved up loads of money to, yeah. to, to buy them trainers and I'd have to jump on that bus, get myself down into <laughs> central Nottingham and go and buy them and get back on the bus again. You can get things in an absolute click of a thumb now. You press, you know, if, if, if there was a, a grievance from a fan and he had a problem with the, the manager, you'd hope that fan would take the time to write a letter, put a stamp on it and go and deliver it in the Royal Mail box and it would be hand delivered to the manager and you'd hope he would read it and get back to you. Now, social media, you can do anything and within a second, it's at the other end. That's exactly where players are now. They want things now. Yeah. And the patience that football, that you have to give football, it actually, what I'm saying is, they've got to understand that they've got to be patient, these young players. The boy at 16 is not the man at 27. There's a patience that yes. takes place. And the journey, you've got to trust the journey. You can't go and buy your trainers in a heartbeat, guys. You've got to wait until the right time. And your right time might be 19. It might be if you're at one of these top academies that have category one under 21 team that cater to wait for the better players. You might not be making your first team debut until you're 23. So please understand the process. That's what I would say to these young players. And I say this to Jesse all the time. It's a great point. I was 16 Make sure conversation. you come home from every training session a little bit better to when you left. That's a good point. Yeah, that's how, that's how winning progress is made. Uh, Sean, thank you so much, mate. It's been a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Keep in touch with me. Uh, I'll reach out to you uh, on WhatsApp, mate. Thank you very much for everything. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good to meet good you, Zach. Job. Take care. See you, mate. Bye.